Do you remember a time in your life when you royally blew it? You perhaps really let down someone you care about. You failed them deeply. Or you got off track from where God wanted you to be and you just went out and got into sin and messed things up so bad and broke God's heart. Do you remember a moment like that in your life when rather than the person stepping in and giving you the judgment that you deserved, the person instead showed you undeserved grace? It's a true story of a Bible college professor years ago who was known for being rather strict and rather tough in a good way for his students. He wanted to push them and challenge them and teach them how to uh, make it on their own. And as the college year was coming to a close, the particular city that they were in had been filled with unrest. There was violence going on day and night. Uh, Buildings were, were being burned. There was rioting and looting and gunshots. And the people in that city were understandably rattled. They, they were, after a few weeks of this, they were mentally exhausted. Most of them couldn't sleep at night, and when they did sleep, their, their sleep was plagued with dreams of fear and terror. And when the time came for the final exam in this professor's class, he could tell in the weeks leading up to this that his students were exhausted. They were drained. And as he watched them file into the classroom that morning to sit and take their final exam, he could see it on their faces. He said he saw it. They just looked disheveled. They looked uh, distant and worried, and he could see it in their eyes. They all took their seats, and he began walking around the classroom, laying the exam papers face down on their desk, and he said, do not turn these papers over until I tell you to. If you do you will get a zero on this final exam. He went around the huge classroom and laid all the papers out, and then he went back to the front, and he said, turn your papers over. And the students sort of uh, let out a collective groan as they knew what was ahead of them for the next couple of hours. They flipped the papers over, and then silence swept over the room. People looked up and began looking at each other, and they looked back at the paper. There was confusion. And then there was a sort of a mumbling, a rumbling that started across the room, people talking to each other saying, is this true? Is this for real? Is this really real? And then people started hooping and hollering and high-fiving and jumping up and hugging each other and screaming. And they, they eventually ran down to the front of the classroom and surrounded this professor and hugged him and were crying. The reason for that was because when they turned the exam papers over, They saw that he had written something on the front of everyone. He said, congratulations, you made an A on this exam. I answered all the questions for you. You got them all right. And then he said, you have just experienced grace. Now, from what I understand, the students the following year were very disappointed when that didn't happen to them (laughs) on their final exam. But what a beautiful illustration that is of people who were just at their wits' end. They were weary from life. They were worn out. They felt empty. They felt incapable for the task. And this man reached out and showed them extraordinary grace and gave to them something that they didn't earn, something that they didn't deserve. 
And that is what grace is all about. The Bible is a book that is filled with grace. It is a book that is filled with people receiving new beginnings. From start to end, we see that the Bible shows us one main thing, that God is holy and perfect and righteous, and man is sinful and plagued by failure. And one of the hardest things, I think, for us as followers of Christ to to grapple with in life is that we not only sin and fail God before we're saved, but we sin and fail God after we're saved. And for a true believer, every sin, every failure brings conviction and sorrow. Because while our unsaved flesh constantly is trying to draw us away from God, our saved soul, as Paul said, longs to please him. And every time we fall short of that, it grieves us deeply. The Bible doesn't hide the failures of anyone. It kind of showcases them. Because what we learn from them is that their failures weren't the end. When people failed, God didn't write them off. He didn't cast them aside and move on to find someone better. Because here's the thing, there is no one better. We're all messed up. Sandy and I were talking to some friends just a couple days ago, and they were talking about their church and this and that, and I I was able to say to them, hey, don't ever trust a church. All churches are broken. This one is too. Trust Jesus alone. He's the only one who will never fail you. He's the only one who will never let you down. He never gives up on you. He never throws you aside. And we see time and again throughout the Bible how God's grace is always there to give people a new beginning. I wonder if somebody here this morning might be at a place in life where you would say, boy, I could sure use a new beginning with God. I think of people throughout the Bible. I I think of the great names, so to speak. Abraham, he was the father of everyone who believes, the father of the Jewish nation. Yet at one point, Abraham lied about his wife and put her in an unbelievably compromising situation just so that he could protect his own skin. God didn't say, boy, did I choose the wrong guy. God gave him a new beginning. Later on, we see Abraham would go on to mess up again, but God was there to give him another fresh start. I think of Moses. Moses, one of the greatest... Uh, names in Jewish history, one of the most well-known people in the Bible. You know what Moses did? He murdered a man, and then he hid his body, and then he fled town and lived for a fugitive for decades. As far as Moses was concerned, his life was over, but he found a new beginning with God because of God's grace. It was Moses whom God called to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. It was Moses to whom God gave the Ten Commandments. It was Moses to whom God entrusted the instructions for building the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. This murderer. And later, do you know what we're told about Moses? That he became the meekest man on the face of the earth. And I think that's what seeing our constant failures in light of God's constant grace should do for all of us. 
When we see how far God's grace had to go to forgive the wretchedness of our sin, it should cause us to live in humble reverence before him, and it should cause us to walk very softly around other people. You understand what I'm saying? The Bible is filled with examples of people who needed a new beginning. But as we come to communion this morning, I want to focus on just one more for just a few minutes. By the way, if you've never been here for communion, we, we always try to take the whole service and just focus on communion and what this means, rather than kind of sticking it onto the end of a service and rushing through it before everybody heads out to Cracker Barrel or wherever. We want to take the whole service and make this a very, very special time of worship and focus for us. The one person I want to spend just a few minutes on is Peter. Because Peter, I think, is someone we can probably all identify with. If you're a follower of Christ, I believe that you could say, I identify with the passion that Peter had for his Lord. I love Jesus. I want so much for my life to please him. I'm I'm so full of zeal for him. You can identify with that. But I bet you, you can also identify with the Peter who failed and who denied his Lord. The night before Jesus was arrested and crucified, he said to his disciples, every one of you is going to abandon me. Every one of you are going to leave me. And Peter, as Peter was prone to do, he spoke up the loudest and the boldest. He said, I'll never leave you, Jesus. These guys probably will because they're losers. If you haven't noticed, they're going to leave you. Me, I never will. And he said, even if I have to die with you, I will never abandon you. That's just like us, isn't it? We tend to distance ourselves from what Peter did. Boy, that was a terrible thing. Can you believe what what Peter did? He promised Jesus that he would never deny him. And then just a few hours later, he denied him. I would suggest to you that there have been many times in our lives when we've made promises to God that we didn't keep. God, I promise you I'll never do that again. And there we go, doing it again. God, I promise you I'm going to be better. I promise you I'm going to be stronger. I promise you I'm going to believe more. And we fail every time. Because it's a constant reminder to us of what the old law was. It's too high for any of us to attain holiness on our own. We can't do it. And we fail him on a regular basis. It wasn't long after that dinner when Peter made that boast that soldiers came in the middle of the night with spears and swords and torches, and they came and arrested Jesus and dragged him off. The Bible says that Peter followed at a distance. By the way, that's a bad way to follow Jesus. You either need to follow him up close where you're with him, or you need to just get out of it altogether. That's what Jesus said. He said, if you're not going to be hot for me, I wish you would just be cold. Just don't even name my name anymore. Instead of staying near to Jesus, we find that Peter stood around a charcoal fire warming himself with unbelievers. Remember that phrase, charcoal fire, would you, for just a moment? And the people there started questioning Peter. They said, hey, we we recognize you. 
You're with that Jesus guy right over there, aren't you? You're one of his followers. Three times they asked him, and three times Peter denied to the point where the Bible says he called down curses, made oaths, and said, I swear I don't even know the man. Luke gives us this detail, this bone-chilling detail, that immediately after Peter denied Jesus the third time, tells us that Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. I've never seen a painting of that, but I would love to. I believe I could say with confidence, knowing the character of Jesus, it was not a look of condemnation. It was a look of encouragement. Peter, I knew you were going to do this, but it's okay, son. It's okay. Because my grace is bigger than your failure. But the Bible says when Peter saw Jesus looking at him, he went out into the night and wept bitterly. Peter was a rugged, tough, foul-mouthed fisherman. He didn't cry. But he was so devastated with grief and shame and guilt. It was all piercing his heart, knowing that he had just publicly, adamantly denied knowing the very Lord who he said he would never leave. And at that point, I have no doubt Peter was convinced that it was all over for him. I mean, if, if you want to rank things that would probably ruin the rest of your spiritual life, I would think denying Jesus three times while he's standing right there is probably right near the top of the list. Peter was convinced, he's done with me. I have blown it. I've thrown everything away. But I'm thankful that there's one more chapter in which Peter is given a new beginning from the Lord. Turn to John chapter 21. I want to show you just a few verses here real quick. John 21. As this chapter opens, we're told that Peter had reached a point where he said to the other disciples, you know what? Uh, I'm done. I'm going back fishing. Now, fishing wasn't a a pleasure for them like it is for people today. Fishing was his job. Jesus had called him from the fishing business and said, I want to make you a fisher of men instead. Peter was supposed to be done with that, but we're told here that he he was so downhearted, he was so confused and disillusioned. Yes, he had seen the risen Lord, but was it really real? And and he just he had let the Lord down so badly. He just, he thought, there's no hope for me. I've completely ruined everything. And so Peter just said, I'm going back. I'm going back to my old life. I'm going fishing. And the other disciples said, we'll go with you. By the way, be careful the choices you make because you're going to take other people with you. So they went out and the Bible says they went out in the boat some distance from shore and they fished all night and they caught nothing. I don't have time to tell you my Heartbreaking stories of spending 12 hours on a boat in the middle of a lake and catching nothing. Fishing is a cruel, cruel uh, endeavor. But for a professional fisherman to spend all night fishing and catch nothing, wow, that was crushing. You know what? There's a lesson in that, I think. When you've come to know Jesus, if you decide to return to your old life, you're going to find it empty. And you can try all night to find joy and happiness and fulfillment, and you never will again. You never will. 
There they are sitting in the boat as the sun comes up and they're disgusted and exhausted. And we're told that as the sun came up in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore and he called out to them. And he called them children. He said, children, how's it going? How's the old life working out for you? You caught anything? You got any food? Now it's hard for a fisherman to admit that he didn't catch anything. You would have thought they said, well, you should have seen the one that was in the net, but he got away. You know, they're so sick of this whole thing, they answered with one word, no, no. And I'm sure under their breath, they were saying, no, we haven't caught anything, but thanks for the reminder. We really appreciate you bringing it up. They didn't know it was Jesus at this point. Peter was feeling as low as he could possibly ever feel. He's dealing with the guilt of denying Jesus, and now a professional fisherman, he can't even get his old career cranked up again. He apparently doesn't even know how to fish anymore. And then we're told that Jesus performed this incredible miracle for them. He said to them in one of the most humorous statements, I think, in the Bible, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll catch some fish. Can you imagine the conversation that took place on that boat in that moment? Are you kidding me? Who is this guy? And I have to think they threw the net on the right side of the boat just in spite to show him, look, look here, nothing. And then all of a sudden, oh, and the net sunk down into the water. The Bible says the net was filled with so many fish that they couldn't pull the net back in. And in that moment, we're told, John realized nobody else could do this. It's Jesus. And when Peter heard that, it says, One of the versions says, he plunged into the sea. (laughs) I love that so much. He just dove overboard. And it wasn't a pretty swan dive with no splash. He plunged in. It was like arms and legs flailing and a belly flop. And he started swimming to the shore. I mean, Peter's either all in or he's all out. He began swimming to the shore. I can just feel the, the heart pounding urgency inside Peter saying, I've got to see him. I've got to make this right. And the crazy guy swims all the way to the shore. And we're told the other disciples followed him in the boat. And we pick up in verse 9. It says, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. What a beautiful picture this is. Jesus is there cooking breakfast for the fellas. And he invites them to come and eat. And they share a meal together just as we're going to do symbolically here in a moment. Verse 15 says this, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, or John, that could be interpreted, do you love me more than these? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep, or the word there is shepherd, pastor, lead my sheep. Verse 17, Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, I've explained this before. We don't have time to dive deeply into it. But for those who've never heard, the English language, uh, unfortunately, falls very short of showing us what is really being said here. We kind of have one word for love. It's love, you know? People say, I love my wife, and then five minutes later they say, I love chocolate ice cream. 
And you're going, wow, really? It's like the same level? But in the Greek, not so. Now, behind what we've just read, I want to share with you quickly, the first time that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He's saying, do you agape me? Agape is the strongest word for love that you can have. It is the highest, most spiritual, most committed form of love that you can have. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me that way? Peter answers, Lord, I phileo you. Phileo is a much lower form of love. It's brotherly love. It's friendship. So the first time Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? Peter says, Lord, I phileo you. I really like you. The second time Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me with the highest love? Peter says, Lord, I phileo you. I really love you. I really like you a lot. But the third time, Jesus steps down to where Peter is. He changes his word, and Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I do. I can't quite make it to where you want me to be, but thank you for meeting me here. What Jesus is doing here was not lost at all on Peter, because it says that Peter was hurt. He was grieved that Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? What was Jesus doing? He was forcing Peter to own the wrong that he had committed. And the hurt that you'll feel owning up to, confessing, the Bible calls it, confessing the wrongs that you've committed, is the only way to be brought to true godly repentance. Glossing over our sin doesn't work. Can I just tell you quickly, when God forgives your sins, he's not glossing over it. He's not saying, ah, it's okay. No problem. No problem. No, sin is a problem for God. And all sin has to be paid for. When God forgives your sin, he's saying the reason it's forgiven is because my son has already taken that sin and I punished him for it in your place. It's mind-blowing. But we tend to gloss over our sin and just say, look, ah, just forget it. I know, I know you blew it. I know you did a bad thing. Just forget it. Listen, if you, if you gloss over your sin, you're only planting it again, and it will grow at some point in the future. We've got to deal with it. We've got to name it. We've got to get serious with it and say, I don't want this in my life anymore. There's something very specific Jesus is doing here in order to restore Peter. The last time Peter was asked three questions in a row, he was standing where? Around a charcoal fire. And now, in John 21, it says charcoal fire again. The only two places in the Bible. You don't think there's a link there? Plenty of fires, wood fires, grass fires. No, Jesus is creating a moment here for Peter to smell the smells, to take it all in and to take him back there and say, Peter, we've got to deal with this. Peter asked him three times, do you love me? Peter had denied three times. There's no mistake what Jesus is doing. He's asking Peter the tough questions in order to give him a chance to be restored. But the beautiful thing is, and I want to close with this, is Jesus wasn't just forgiving Peter. He was giving Peter a new beginning. Because he said to Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to lead my people, Peter. Why? Why would Jesus ever give him that position? Listen, because broken people make the best leaders. One of the questions I love to ask people when they're pursuing the Lord and perhaps considering a leadership position is, tell me about the times in your life when you've been broken. And if they go, well, I'm 
haven't really. I go, thanks for stopping by. Not quite ready for it yet. Those who've seen the grace of God restore them from their own failures, do you not think they'll be more patient and tender-hearted toward those who struggle and stumble and fall? Listen, Peter's life was changed forever by the grace that God showed him here in John chapter 21. And we know that because of the very last words Peter wrote to the world. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, this is how Peter pens the last thing he'll ever say to the world. Therefore, beloved, since you already know these things, be on your guard so that you will not be carried away by the error of the wicked and fall from your secure standing. Mm. Peter knew all about that. And here it is, verse 18, the last thing he said to the world, but grow in grace. Grow in grace. And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter was absolutely transformed by the grace of God. Because Jesus forced him to understand the magnitude of his sin. And it's not until you and I understand the magnitude of our sin that we'll ever appreciate the extent of God's love. And when Peter finally understood this, he never got over it. I want to take just a few minutes and show you a video that will help sort of bring this into our language, into our times. I think it's very touching to see this. Guys, roll that whenever you've got it ready. Grace is God's unmerited favor for us, his crazy love. And the truth is, many times we struggle understanding it. If you find yourself struggling to understand God's grace, don't beat yourself up. Even the disciples struggled with understanding grace. Jesus, is that you? You're alive, I can't believe you're alive. Okay, I was in the boat and I wasn't catching any fish, okay? But I heard this voice and the voice said, cast your net to the other side. And so I'm thinking, I'm a fisherman, I know what I'm doing, but I'm not catching any fish, you know? And so I throw that net over there and then a gaggle of fish pop into that net and I'm going, this is a total miracle. Who could have done that? I need to know who told me to throw the net to the other side. And boom, I look up and I mean, there is you. You're looking at me on the seashore going, it is I, the Lord, and you're alive. I can't believe you're alive. <laughs> this is awesome. Andrew, get out of the boat, come on. Peter, yeah. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. I love you. You're alive. This is so great. Good. And, then feed my sheep. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on, man. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? I love you. Yes. And I'm so sorry about that rooster cluck, and I had no idea what that meant, but I do not. I'm better for it. All right. Okay. Then feed my sheep. Andrew, I'm smiling, but I'm serious. Come on, get out of the boat. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? Jesus, mere words cannot describe the passion that I have for you. I love you. You know everything. I love you. Good. Good. Then feed my sheep. I didn't even know you had livestock. That is so like you, though. There's something new about you all the time. That's what I love about you. Peter, yeah. do you remember uh, the morning the ladies went to the tomb? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all in the upper room trying to figure out what to do next, you know, because we thought you were dead. You know, you were dead, you know, and we're trying to figure all that out, you know. And Mary comes running up, and Mary's like saying, beehive, beehive, beehive. And I'm thinking, I'm allergic to bees. Like, keep them out. You know what I'm saying? But as she kept getting closer, I heard her correctly. She was saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And we're going, who's alive, who's alive? And she said, she was at the tomb, and the tomb was empty. 
and she said that the, there was an angel there, and the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay, he is risen. And so me and John, we hightailed it down there, and if John says he beat me, he's totally lying, all right? I beat him, FYI, all right, you know? And we get down there, and I'm looking in that tomb, and it is, it is empty. There's nothing in there, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And John is right there. John is so good with words. He should write a book. He is so good with words. And John said, don't you get it, Peter? This is everything Jesus said he was going to do, and you did it, and it's done. Let's go. This is so great. Wait, yeah. the angel said what? Uh, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. You've risen. Let's go. This he is okay. said what? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. You said my name. Why did you say my name? Peter, that's grace. No, no, I don't, I don't deserve that because that night people kept coming up to me asking me if I belonged to you, if I was with you, and I kept denying you left and right, all right? No, no it'll take me my whole life to make up for what I did. It was unforgivable for no, what I did. No, What I did on the cross was meant to take what is unforgivable and make it forgivable. That's my grace. It's not about you. It's always about me. That's grace, Peter. Lifted Peter out of that dark place of failure and guilt and shame and forgave him and sent him on a brand new mission. That's why Christ came, to forgive our sins and to give us life and to give us a new mission. As we come to the Lord's table now, I hope that you'll have that on your mind and you'll be thankful for the death that Christ died on the cross for you, the grace that he showed to you, and the forgiveness that he has brought to you. I want us to take just a, a moment before we come to just reflect. Bring your heart before the Lord. If there's anything there between you and him, I ask you to, uh, to deal with that right now before you come to the Lord's table. Um, this is for everyone who is saved. You don't need to be a member of this church. That doesn't matter at all. We invite you to come. If you know the Lord as your Savior, we invite you to come and participate. The Bible says that Jesus took the bread and broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we come this morning and... We pause to remember the sacrifice that your son made on our behalf. We remember the grace that has been shown to all of us. And we come with grateful hearts, humble hearts, still filled with a measure of disbelief about all of this. It's so grand we can hardly take it in. But we thank you for your amazing grace that has been shown to us. Pray, Father, that as we come to the table, it would be a time of great reflection and a time of great rejoicing over your son and the gift that he has given to us. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning or anyone watching online who's never surrendered their life to you, who's never repented of their sins and called upon you for salvation, I pray that right now in this moment, they would come to you and give their life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. 
Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. to see